And God is good? And all the time? Glad that you chose to worship with us today. As I already mentioned, my name is John, and uh, I'm blessed to be the pastor here. Uh, I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter number 2. Ephesians chapter number 2. If you're not real familiar where that is in your Bible, of course you can always look uh, in your table of contents, but it's kind of in the back quarter of your Bible. And uh, so Ephesians chapter uh, number 2. And uh, you know, here at Hallmark, our goal is really simple. We want to help people find and follow Jesus. And of course, we've been speaking the last, this is week five of our series one. We're talking about a unity. And you know, unity doesn't necessarily mean uniformity, right? Uh, look around the room this morning and you can see there's some wise people with some Dallas Cowboy jerseys on. I see some Chiefs jerseys. That was your chance. Uh, I see New Orleans Saints jersey over there. I, that's the dark corner over there, I guess. Atlanta Falcons. What, what else we got? But uh, Denver Broncos, I, I don't even want to mention them. Um, so unity doesn't necessarily mean we're all the same, does it? But it means that we, we come together for a common cause. That's to help people find and follow Jesus. And so we have started this series, and uh, this is our fifth week, and we really launched from John chapter 17. So uh, if, if we're going to have those verses on the screen this morning, John 17. This is a prayer of Jesus, and, and Jesus was praying for the church. So when we think about the church, there's a couple ways that you may need to understand this. And so several times in Scripture, uh, you know, we're called the church. We're also called a body of Christ, uh, a family, uh, a household of God is one that we're going to see here in Ephesians chapter number 2. But when we think about the church, okay, the church has more than just one location, right? The church, in fact, is believers. If you, have, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you would be classified as a part of the church. And so we have, you know, the church, one word that maybe is kind of scary to some people is the universal church, right? Everyone who belongs to Jesus belongs to the church of Christ. They're a part of the body of Christ. But then we think in, in maybe in a more local context for us here, then we are what would be considered a local church, a local body of Christ, a local body of believers. And in prayer here of Jesus, Jesus is praying for church. He's praying for the believers. I believe it also is, is very applicable for us as a local church. And what is Jesus praying? Now think about, just real quickly, I'm going to give you the context. Maybe you haven't been here the last few weeks and the context of this prayer of Jesus is he is praying in the upper room, what we've called as the upper room. And why do we call it that? Is because guess what? They were in an upper room, all right? It's really theological there. They were upstairs, okay? And they were upstairs and they were celebrating Passover. And just moments before they're going to leave and go to the, gar the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is going to be arrested, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be put on trial, and they're going to crucify him and put him in a grave. Just before that happens, he's praying. And think, and just in the understanding of where we are in the timeline of Jesus' life, he knows what's about to happen. In fact, he's already told Judas, go and do what must be done. He knows that tonight is the night. And what is he praying? And, and understand the gravity, the, 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 how important this prayer must be to the disciples. Not only to the disciples, but it's recorded for us because Jesus prays specifically for us. 
So in the first part of the prayer, he prays for himself. Then he prays for the disciples who were in the room with him that night. And then that's where we pick up here in John 17. It says in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone. And again, so he's referencing the disciples who are with him but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's praying for the church, right? For all followers of Jesus. And what is his prayer? What is Jesus' prayer for the church? What is Jesus' prayer for us? Verse 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, and me, and I and you, that they may also be one in us. And here's the first reason why Jesus is praying for unity, for us to be one. That the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus is praying that we as a church would be uh, so unified in the purpose to helping people find and follow Jesus that people from the outside of the church would look in and say, Jesus must be real. Jesus must be the Messiah. It goes then in verse 22, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, and that they may be made perfect in one. Here's the second reason he's praying for unity. That the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So here's the two reasons we as a church want to pray for unity. is so that the world would believe Jesus and they would know that God loves them. Again, it's simple. We want to help people find and follow Jesus. And if the outside looks at our church and sees us loving one another as Christ loved the church, what Jesus is praying, what he is saying through his prayer is that if we would live like that in such unity, in such community, in such love, that people would realize God loves them and Jesus died for them. So here's a simple question. I think it should be an easy yes, but we're going to find out. Do you want people to know that Jesus loves them? Do you want people to know that he died for them? Do you want people to know they can have Jesus in their life? Yeah, so that's simple. That's why we want to live in unity. So Ephesians chapter number 2, and, and we're going to, again, we've been talking about unity. On your bulletin this morning is this big idea, all right? So the title of the message, be careful as you look at it, it says, two buts. Now what? Now I'm going to be um, real with you this morning. This is not the title I wanted. Okay, the title I wanted was, I like big butts and I cannot lie. <laughs> but God gave me a discerning wife, and she said, she put no. Anyways, we'll move on. The big idea. The big idea, right? We... All right, let's gather our thoughts for a moment, everybody. <laughs> moment of silence. Here's the big idea. We are brought to life and brought near in order to be brought together. Okay, so that's going to kind of guide our thoughts this morning as we walk through the text. So let's read Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read it for us. As we read the entire chapter, then I'm going to point out the two buts, all right, and then we're going to see the what or so what. All right, Ephesians chapter number 2. Verse number one, and it says, and you he made alive, all right? So I know we're about to read 20 verses, but i got to stop for a second just to explain what Paul is saying. This letter, what we would now call the book of Ephesians, was lit, written to a church. It was written to a body of believers. And so Paul is saying, you, as followers of Jesus, the local church. So this is applying, when we talk about these things this morning, Paul is applying it to a church, to followers of Jesus. And so he says, you, he made alive, he being Jesus, he being God, the Lord, 
We are dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just as others. Verse number four, all right, here's the first big but. Number four, but God. When you see that in Scripture, you, you, either, you either get the sense of, like, I want to celebrate, or a sense of relief, or a sense of peace. And, and so he's, he's contrasting. We're going to get into that in a minute. But he says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and you raised up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's a theme here. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. So again, Paul is alluding to his audience. These are followers of Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. It wasn't of works, lest anyone should boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Again, the church, those who are followers of Jesus, we are his workmanship created, here's that phrase again, in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that you once Gentile in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Verse 12 and following is is so important for us to understand. That at the time you were without Christ. We're just saying the words without hope. When when we understand what the, the song is saying, it's referencing really this passage of Scripture. Because look what it says. We were without Christ. We were aliens. Remember what we sang? We just sang about it. We're, we're now citizens. It's referencing this particular passage of Scripture. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenant of promise. Having no what? Hope. Without Christ equals no hope. So Paul continues on. Verse 13, the second big but. But now in Christ Jesus. But now Jesus. You who were once far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create himself one new man from the two. And again, this is referencing the church, followers of Jesus Christ, that we have been brought together in unity, in peace, through Christ. He goes on to say, thus making peace that he might reconcile them both to God and one body, one church. You, do you understand what Paul and all throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul is saying is our unity in the church is in Christ. He says, thereby putting to death enmity, and he came and he preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Now, verse 18, we're going to spend a lot of time. It's not really uh, in our, our text as far as what we're trying to pull out of this this morning, but you, have, you, you should make note of this verse 18. Because verse 18 points to what we now term the Trinity. 
Okay, you're not going to see the word Trinity in the Bible, but here's a picture of the Trinity. And what do I mean by the Trinity? That's when you see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We believe the Bible teaches in a triune God or one God, three distinct personalities. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And here it says, what, what are the roles of these three? It says, for through him, okay, if you're like me, you might write an arrow out. and write, Who's him? It's Jesus. Through Jesus, we have, this is a great word, we have, what's the word? Say it, what's the word? We have access. Who do we have access to? We have access to God through the Spirit. So, so let's think about this in terms of prayer. I pray to the Lord, as this, this verse is alluding to, I have access. I'm praying to the Lord through Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit. What a great picture of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We have access because Jesus died on the cross. And as we just read, he tore down the wall of separation, that we now have access to God, empowered by the Spirit. So verse number 19. So we've, we've gone over verse 4, the first but, the verse 13, the second but, I really feel weird continuing to say that, just to be honest with you. In verse 19, here's the now what. Okay? Or the so what. Verse 19, now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but your fellow citizens with saints and members. You belong. You're a part. You're in the family. You're in the community. What does it say? You're members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also, being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. All right, so let's fill out these blanks and kind of walk through this as we've just read the entire text. Number one here, I'm sure you've already figured out, but God. Ephesians 2, 4, but God, who's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And, and so let's contrast. So verses 1 through 3 are contrasting. They're describing for us what our old life was like, what our life was like before Christ, what our position was before Christ. And then verses 4 through 6 describe what our new life is like after we found Christ, our new position in Christ. Look at the words here. Old life, you were dead. New life, you've been made alive. Old life, you were children of wrath. New life, children of, wow, grace. Grace is a pretty amazing word, isn't it? We were children of wrath in our old life before Christ. Our new life in Christ, children of grace. We walked into disobedience in the old life. The new life, we walked in fellowship. We were in Christ. We have fellowship with God. We have access to God through Jesus, empowered by the Spirit. The old life under Satan's dominion. The new life, union with Christ. So two words I want us to think about. But God, who's rich in mercy. What does that word mercy mean? It simply means that I don't get what I deserve. I don't get what I deserve. And we think about this list that's on the screen. I don't want to be dead. I want to be alive. I don't want to be a child of wrath. I want to be a child of grace. I don't want to walk in disobedience. I want to walk in fellowship. I don't want to be under Satan's dominion. I want to be in union with Christ. And, and so the contrast here is because of God's mercy, and I don't get what I deserve, 
I get grace. And these two are really um, talking about the same event from both sides of that. Mercy is, I don't get what I deserve. So what do I deserve? When, when, you, when you read Scripture, what all of us deserve, it, the Bible says all have sinned, and all, guess what it means? Wow, you guys are so quick. All means all. We've all sinned. And sin, the punishment for sin, has always been death. Ever since the beginning. Remember, God created Adam and Eve in innocence. They were perfect before God, in perfect union, perfect relationship. He said, don't eat of this fruit. They ate of the fruit. And what did he say before they ate of the fruit? If you eat of the fruit, you shall surely what? Die. Death has always been the punishment for sin. They sinned. God sacrificed an animal to be a temporary covering for their sin. That's why in Hebrews it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Because sin always leads to death. The punishment for sin has always been death. But God, who's rich in his mercy, with which he loved us, made a way. So mercy is that I don't get death. But there's another, even a more exciting part of that, that I also get grace. Well, what is grace? Grace is getting something that I don't deserve. Not only do I not get punishment and death, which means separation from God, I also get the grace of God in my life. And what does that mean? It means I've been made alive. It means I'm a child of grace. It means that I walk in union with Christ. So look at this. We were dead, but God has brought us to what? Life through his mercy. But, but how do I get that? See, let's look down the text. It says, God is rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. But look at verse number 8. And what does it say? For by grace you have been saved. So all these things that we listed, life, fellowship with the Lord, union with Christ, child of grace, how do I get that grace applied to me? It's one thing to know that God's mercy is available. It's one thing to know that I'm saved by grace. So how do I get the grace? Doesn't that seem like a logical question to ask? Because he says, by grace, you're saved. It's not of works. It's not of being good. It's not about church attendance. It's, it's how am I saved? Grace. God's grace. I get something I don't deserve. That means I get forgiveness. I get a relationship with Christ. I get a home in heaven. Grace. Don't we all want grace? Verse 8 then says, By grace you've been saved through what? Faith. Grace is available. And grace is what saves you. So how do I get the grace? I place my faith in Jesus. We, we read last week in 1 Corinthians 15. We won't turn there this morning, but 1 Corinthians 15 Paul said, you're saved by the good news. You're saved by the gospel. You're saved by placing your faith in Jesus. Well, what, 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 am I, what does that mean? And he goes on in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 to say, to explain us what that is. That we are, we are placing our faith that Jesus is who he says he is. You see why it's so important for us to live in unity? That's the prayer Jesus prayed. That people would know that I am who I say I am. And the only way they're going to know that I am who I say I am is if the church lives in unity. So I'm going to believe, I'm going to have faith that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. I'm going to have faith that Jesus died for my sins. I'm going to have faith that they put Jesus in the tomb and that three days later, he what? 
came back to life. Aren't you glad that Jesus is not still in the grave? He is alive, and because he is alive, it changes everything. And we can have mercy and grace. And now you understand how big verse 4 really is. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but God came to me. He saved me. Number two, verse number 13 says, but Christ. Verse number 13 says, but Christ. So let's think about this for a moment. God's love and God's, God's love brought us mercy. That's what he said. Uh, but God who's rich in his mercy because of how much love he had for us. So God's love brings mercy to us. God's love brought grace to us. God's love brought Christ to us. And what does this verse say? Because of Christ and because of the shed blood of Christ, we who were far have been brought where? Near. And it gives us this understanding of relationship. It gives us understanding you were aliens, you were strangers, you were not in the promise, you had no hope, you were without God in the world, but now Christ has brought you near. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he did what? He gave. And whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, as I already stated, that, that death has always been the punishment for sin. And Jesus came to live a sinless life. We, we sang about that. He came and he, he washed the disciples' feet. He washed our feet. He came. He humbled himself, Philippians 2 says, and he became obedient to death, even the death on the, of the cross. That Jesus being king, Jesus being the creator, Jesus being Lord of lords, humbled himself and became us so that he could die for us. And so he can bring us who were far near by his blood. I want to read two verses of scripture. They're going to be on the screen for us this morning. And both of them give us this idea, but Christ. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things. Redeemed, you were purchased. Okay, you were not purchased with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. In other words, it's not about church. It's not about traditions. It's not about your heritage. You were redeemed. You were purchased by what? It says here, but with the precious blood of Christ. No longer would we have the Old Testament sacrificial system, again, the shedding of blood for a temporary payment of sins, but now Jesus, and that's why John, when he saw Jesus walking to him, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus came, he lived a sinless, perfect life to die on the cross so that we could be brought near and into fellowship and into relationship and be made alive. But Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, 9 and 11 says this. Again, referencing the Old Testament system of sacrifice, verse 11 of Hebrews 9 says, But 
Christ, again, you get those two words, but Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So let's think about this. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God gave mercy. We were aliens, we were strangers, we were afar off, we were not citizens. We had no house, we had no home, we had no hope, but Christ shed his blood to bring us near, to bring us into relationship, to bring us into fellowship with Jesus himself. So, but God, he brought us to life, but Christ brought us near, which leads us to the question there in your, bull, your bulletin, now what? Right? So we got the two buts, now what? Ephesians chapter 2. Let's, let's look at the last few verses. Look at verse number 19. It says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the house of God. God has brought us into fellowship. Why would he do that? It says there in your bulletin this morning, we were alone, but have been brought together. We've been alone, been brought together. So if, if you this morning have given your life to Jesus Christ, you've placed your faith in him, you've made that decision. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe that the only way I can get to heaven is through Jesus. I believe that they buried him, he came back to life, and now he's in heaven sitting next to the Father. I believe, and I believe that I must place my faith in Jesus in order to have forgiveness of sins, in order to be saved. If you believe that, then these things apply to you. Remember, Paul is writing to the church. He's writing to believers. And so, we were once dead, but God made us alive. We were once far off, but Christ brought us near. So, what's our response? Now what? And we get the picture here in verses 19 through 22 of the Lord building his church. Let's keep reading. It says, we were members of the household of God. Verse number 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and most importantly, Jesus Christ himself, being the chief cornerstone so what brings unity into the church? The foundation. Who's the cornerstone of the church? It's Jesus. And if you ever go to a church that doesn't point you to the chief cornerstone being Jesus, find another church. The only thing that will bring any church unity is that we're unified in the message of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is not just the chief cornerstone. What God told, what Jesus says is that God has given me all authority in heaven and earth. And I, Jesus, am the head of the church. And if you ever go to a church that doesn't tell you that Jesus is the head of the church, you know what you should do? Find another church. If a church stops preaching that the only way to God is Jesus, what should you do? Leave. Find another church. Unity only comes in relationship with Jesus Christ. And you get this picture that we've been built together. Let's keep reading and look for that 
understanding here. Verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together, it grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together. Why? To be a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, if you were here a few years ago and we, we went through the Old Testament tabernacle, and remember, tabernacle simply meant dwelling place. And the tabernacle was a temporary structure that was the dwelling place of God. Then they built the temple, which served the same purpose as the tabernacle, but it was a permanent structure for the, the house of God, the dwelling place of God. And then in the New Testament, when Jesus came, we see in Acts chapter number 2 that now the Holy Spirit, when we give our life to Christ, enters into our life. And now this building doesn't house the presence of God. It says here that he's, we're being built together to be the dwelling place of God. Is that talking of the, the walls of this building? No. Who's it talking about? It's talking about you and me. Chiefs fans, Cowboys fans, Saints fans. I'm not going any farther. We're being built together to be the dwelling place of God. And that's why when we gather together, and Soya mentioned this this morning, that when we gather together every Sunday and we enjoy laughter together, we enjoy scripture together, we enjoy worshiping together. Can I give you a big hint about how to enjoy church so much more than maybe you already do? Is that you worship, this is going to be mind-blowing, that you worship at home every day? That you're being built up and you're growing in your walk with Christ? And you come to church, and now we do it together. You see, my body is a dwelling place of God. Because in 1991, I placed my faith in Jesus. And I acknowledged that the only way I could get to heaven was through placing my faith in Jesus. And at that very moment, God gifted me with the Holy Spirit, and I became the temple of God. Whatever date it was when you gave your life to Christ, at that very moment, you became the dwelling place, the tabernacle, the temple of God. And the picture here is that the Lord is placing people in his church. Jesus, the chief cornerstone. Let's go back to what Ben said two weeks ago. The church, remember the title of his message? The church needs you. And God is placing people in his church. Why? For his glory. To be a dwelling place for the worship and the presence of God. This morning we introduced to you four new members. And you know what I tell everyone that walks through our membership class? It's a three-week class. We sit around. We talk about doctrine. We talk about uh, the purpose of the church. We talk about the spiritual gifts God has empowered to us so that we can be a part of the church. And you know what? I t in fact, today we'll have our pizza with the pastor. If you're interested at all in church membership, you're new to here, I would love to meet you. Uh, we have a free lunch for you. Follow the pizza signs when you leave. But you know what I tell everybody in pizza with the pastor and Discover Hallmark class? If God is not placing you in this church then you don't need to be a part of this church. First Corinthians talks a lot about this, and we don't take time to get there, but write a note to yourself. Go to First Corinthians chapter number 12. 
As you study through all these notes, read 1 Corinthians 12. And in 1 Corinthians 12, you're going to see that, that Paul uses the analogy that the church is a body and that the church needs all parts of the body to function properly in order for the church to function properly. And that Paul says that God is placing people in his church to do what we just read in verse number 10. We are created, we are his workmanship. Created for what? Good works. That we come together as a local body of Christ where God has placed us to serve. And that as we live in community and as we serve one another, as we love one another, what Jesus was praying, when the world sees the church that I've placed people in, and Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the purpose of the church. Jesus is the mission of the church. And we are a church that's helping people find and follow Jesus. Then that church becomes a dwelling place for God. Do you want God's presence in this place? Amen. You can do better than that. Do you want God's presence in this place? Amen. And God has placed you here so that he could get the glory. Thousands and thousands of people are moving to our community, aren't they? I'm excited. We're getting Andes right down the street. Can I get an amen for Andes? Some of you don't know what Andes is. Don't look it up. Don't go. It will save your diet. It will save your checkbook. Just don't even visit, okay? But you know all those shops that are going in? Do you know why all those shops are going in? Because there's all those people coming. You know what I want people to know about this church? Is that we live in such unity and focus of purpose that the prayer of Jesus comes true. They will know that God loves them and they will believe Jesus is who he said he is. And it's worth it. God is placing you in his church to become a dwelling place for his spirit. If we want God to show up on Sunday, you know what we need to do on Monday? We need to show up with God. And if my walk with God is consistent on Monday, and my walk with God is consistent on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, it will change everything about my experience on Sunday. Because I'll walk in this room ready to worship and ready to serve. I'm thankful for, we have a lot of people in this, in this church that serve. I'm thankful right now for all those in the nursery. And as I see the countdown there, I'm, I know that i got to hurry because they're wrestling with your little babies, right? And I'm thankful for our kids ministry workers who right now, they have their own church and they're worshiping and they receive an offering and they memorize scripture. They get their Bible out and they do their sword drills. And I'm thankful for the adults who are willing to sacrifice being in here and going and teaching our kids. I'm thankful that right now in this back room that there are men that are praying for this moment. They're praying for you. Last week we had women in the back room here and they were praying for you. There's plenty of opportunity for you to be involved and serve. And if God has placed you in his church, he's placed you so you can serve. I would ask you to close your eyes this morning. 
Maybe you're new here this morning, and, and, and so I just want to inform you of what we're about to do. The, our, our praise team's going to come up. They're going to lead us in a last song of worship. It, it's really a time of response. It's a time to respond to the Lord of what you've heard. And, and so let me just maybe guide. There's, there's really plenty of responses you could have, but I think I could narrow it down maybe to two. The first response you might have this morning is that you, you have never placed your faith in Jesus. Paul was writing specifically to believers. He was writing specifically to followers of Jesus. And maybe this morning you realize that you have never given your life to Jesus. And here's what I want you to do this morning. In a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song of worship. There's going to be men and women. We're going to be standing here at the front. We're going to be facing you. And if you would like to give your life to Jesus, what I'm going to ask you to do when we stand is just to walk down here. There's going to be men. There's going to be women. Just shake someone's hand and say, I need Jesus. It's that simple. We would love to open our Bible and show you exactly how you can receive God's mercy and his grace through faith. The other possibility this morning is that maybe this morning you sit here and you realize that, well, the purpose of the church is to help people find and follow Jesus. And and so the question then maybe would be, are you helping the church fulfill its purpose? Are you helping the church live in unity? And in doing so, living in unity, you're drawing people to Christ. And I would challenge you this morning, if there's something God has spoken to you about, the altar will be open in a moment when we stand. You can come and you can just spend some time with the Lord in prayer. If you need somebody to pray with you, shake somebody's hand and just say, would you pray with me? That's why they're here. They would love to. If you want to pray alone, just come kneel and pray. God, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Christ. We're thankful that God, who's rich in mercy, with which he loved us, we're thankful that because of the shed blood of Christ, we can be brought near and into fellowship. God, I just pray in the next few minutes that we would respond. We'd respond to what you're asking us to do. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Would you stand with us this morning as we begin to worship?